This is the Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of the Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. I've spent the better part of the last decade diving deep into understanding human potential. It's a never-ending fascination of mine to explore how we can become the best version of ourselves. What we should be doing and what we shouldn't. What fuels us to grow and contribute and what foils us from achieving our ultimate goals and dreams. I've read hundreds of books, attended dozens of seminars, and learned from the masters as well as studying those who are executing life at the highest level, in spite of tremendous odds and perhaps the lack of gifts that they've been given in life. I'm often asked by clients and friends for tips or strategies and insights and how to help them in the pursuit of their own potential. But if there's one absolute truth, perhaps an ironic truth about personal growth, it's that your growth is less about adding more to your life and ways of doing things. And it's more about stripping away the layers of misguided masks or ineffective ideas or suboptimal sense of your own self-image. As someone once said, personal growth is not additive, it's reductive. It's not about becoming someone you're not. It's getting rid of the crap that's piled up over the years that has disconnected you from who you really are, who you truly are, and what's preventing you from feeling free to be yourself. I'm always excited to spend time with people who not only get this, but are masters at helping others become more authentically them. Today, I'm keen to bring you a conversation with Mike Robbins, one of those masters. Mike, as you soon hear, is someone who brings a lot of wisdom from his early lessons as an elite athlete to his current work in helping leaders become better leaders. Mike cuts through the clutter and speaks the truth about how to become more authentic, more courageous, and frankly, more honest with yourself about what you need to understand and do on your path to your potential. I took lots of notes during this interview, and I hope you do too. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Mike Robbins. Mike is an author of five books, a multi-time TED speaker, and an expert in teamwork, leadership, and emotional intelligence. Mike has spent more than 18 years researching, speaking, and running workshops to help people be more authentic and true to themselves. His work has been featured on ABC News, the Oprah Radio Network, and in the New York Times and Wall Street Journal. He's been invited all around the world for some of the most demanding and highest performing companies on the planet. Mike, it's an honor to have you here. Welcome to The Ignition Show. Hey, thanks for having me on, Chris. I'm glad we got connected, and I'm excited and honored to be here. Yeah, likewise. I'm very excited to have you on. And so your last book that you wrote was really about um, bringing your whole self to work with a core yep. focus on vulnerability. Well, yes. I'd love to dive into that right out of the gate. First of all, how do you define bringing your whole self? What does that mean? That's a great question. You know, it's funny. My my podcast for a couple of years was called Bring Your Whole Self to Work. And uh, we changed the name of the podcast about, I don't know, a year ago to We're All in This Together because that's the book that I've been working on and writing. And, and I'm saying all that because I used to start every episode of my podcast with asking people that question. And as you asked me, I was like... <laughs> I don't know. Um, I gotcha. Yeah, right. No, it just made me laugh. I think, I mean, for me, bringing your whole self to work is really about a willingness um, to show up, like fully show up with all of it, you know, to be vulnerable, to bring the good, the bad, and the ugly to, um, you know, I think there's a tendency for all of us, myself included, particularly at work, but just in life 
to want like the tip of the iceberg, you know, the shiny polished part to come forth. Mm-hmm. Um, but bringing our whole selves to work means that, you know, we're willing to bring it all, even the stuff that we might be afraid of and worried that people will judge. Um, but in doing that, you know, it not only liberates us and unlocks more of, of who we are and what we can bring, it actually gives other people permission to do the same. Yes. And I know as a, as a guy, you, who spent many, many years diving into this topic and not only learning about what it means to be vulnerable and bring the good, bad, the ugly, but also look at some really, really powerful research of real <laughs> life people or organizations or communities where, where people are acting this way. So yeah. you've immersed yourself into it. And yet you yeah. often go into organizations where, you know, there are probably people who are still very, very reluctant. What's been your experience um, in introducing these conversations to people, whether it's a live workshop or maybe in your, you know, your business development side of things where you first go into a company and say, here's what you guys need. And if people are really skeptical, what, what's that experience like? And how do you kind of wrap people's head around this idea of, of the, this side of the equation being equally as important as the hard driving strategy part of the equation? Yeah, it's a great question. It's been an evolution, I would say, for me personally. I mean, I've been doing this work for going on now 20 years. And, um, you know, I started when I was 26. Uh, it was 2001. And so, you know, the world has changed quite a bit in that amount of time. And I have changed. I mean, but one of the things, you know, my background, Chris, I was an athlete for most of my life growing up. I played baseball. I live here in California where I grew up and I uh, got drafted uh, high school by the New York Yankees. Didn't end up signing with the Yankees because I got a chance to play baseball in college at Stanford. Then went to Stanford and got drafted out of Stanford by the Kansas City Royals and signed a pro contract. And, you know, the way it works in baseball, whether you get drafted by the Yankees or the Royals or the Toronto Blue Jays or any of the teams in here in North America in the major leagues, right? You have to go into the minor leagues. And yeah. I ended up getting injured when I was in the minor leagues with Kansas City. So I was three years into my pro career hurt my pitching arm, tore ligaments in my elbow, three surgeries later, finally had to retire when I was 25. But I basically played baseball for 18 of the first 25 years of my life. And, um, you know, I talk a lot about this experience in my work now, even though it's been, you know, more than 20 years since I stopped playing, um, because I learned a ton of things in that experience, not just about baseball and not just about, you know, succeeding as an individual or as a team. I mean, I did, but there were so many intangible aspects like the mental and emotional side for me as an athlete of competing was by far the hardest and most important. The physical part was super important, mm-hmm. but at that level, the, co- the collegiate level, you know, division one college or, you know, pro level. Yeah. You know, somebody who's six foot five and throws 95 miles an hour as a pitcher is going to have an advantage over somebody like me who's barely six feet tall, who could, hit 90 miles an hour if I was lucky with my fastball. But at the end of the day, when I went out on the mound to pitch, my effectiveness or lack thereof was way less about my physical skill and talent and much more about mentally and emotionally how I could manage myself in the game. And then on the team level, I also was fascinated by team dynamics because like sometimes I was on some teams with really good talent, but the team wasn't very good which didn't make sense, you know, and like, wait, in sports, if you have the best players or the best athletes, you should have the best team. But then I was on some other teams where it wasn't like, you know, the talent was bad necessarily, but it was just okay. And the team was fantastic. And so then it was like, well, what's that? And so I became sort of interested even in those days when I was playing. And then this is a long answer to your question though. But what, what I came to then realize 
as I got into the business world myself, I got a job in sales in the late nineties in the dot-com world here in, in California in the sort of technology center of the world. Right. And I realized like, Oh, that's personal mental, emotional approach as well as the team collective sort of team chemistry, team culture dynamic. Those two things are still just as important, if not even more important in the business world as they were in the sports world. So that was how I originally started to, when I got interested in this kind of work, I worked for a couple of years in the dot-com world, got laid off during the, you know, when the dot-com bubble burst and then decided that I wanted to start coaching and speaking and writing and trying to bring forth some of these ideas. The way that I initially would introduce it to people who were much more skeptical two decades ago was like, look, this stuff mattered to me more than anything as an athlete. And I played sports at a pretty high level. And that would start to get even skeptics and cynics a little interested, like what, what, you know, it was like sort of this notion of peak, peak performance. Now, fast forward 20 years and you know, and this show is all about in so many ways. And you know, from your own business and the work that you do, the research and all of the data that we have now that we know so much more about how we operate as human beings, physically, mentally, emotionally, we know so much more about what's necessary for teams to perform at a high level. I actually think, you know, years ago, people would say to me, well, the mic, that's nice, but those are all soft skills. And they would say it in kind of a condescending way. (laughs) And my response at first would be a little apologetic, like, you know, I know, but, but after a few years, I started to get mad. I'm like, listen, soft skills are hard. Yes. Like they're really hard, like dealing with ourselves and motivating ourselves and managing our own, everything going on inside of us and our lives and balancing that and everything and, and trying to motivate other human beings. Like that's really, really hard to do. And so anyway, I think, I think a lot of people understand the importance of this, even if some know it's more important than others. I don't think there's a ton of people, even with their own cynicism and skepticism about it, that will argue for that. It's not important. The question becomes in today's world, what's most important and what's the best way to deliver this in a way that can have the biggest impact. Um, and some companies are more progressive and invest more than others. But there are very few that I find that are like, what are you talking about? We don't need that, you know? And and if you do, probably, A, not the companies you want to work with, and B, they're probably not going to be around for very long. No, that's true. And look, we also have to acknowledge, at least over the last close to decade now, here in the U.S. and in Canada and in North America, I mean, the economy across the world, the economy has been pretty darn good. So companies are more willing to invest in stuff like this because when push comes to shove, and I've had my business long enough and been doing this work long enough to know Like when we were in a major recession and the economy turned down, it wasn't that people didn't think this stuff was important. It then just became a priority of what are we going to invest in? Um, And, you know, knock on wood, the economy stays good and strong for as long as possible. But, you know, it'll be interesting to see what happens with all of this expanded awareness and all of this expanded commitment and, and investment by organizations, big and small, what happens when things tighten up a little bit. Yeah, I can relate to so much of what you said there. I, I also um, uh, been an athlete all my life and played uh, college football up in Canada. Oh, and, you did? Yeah, I, I totally agree that you know, going from high school to college, the the, the whole difference. Yeah, there's a bit of physical development, but uh, sure. certainly was mental mental development, especially when you get in the ultra competitive high level. Uh, yeah, you know, national championship level in right. the in the key moments. It's all that. Yeah. I, I totally what what, posi- what position did you play? I was a quarterback. Oh, wow. So even, oh, more, well, even more mental and emotional, whew. for sure. Well, yeah. I mean, in football, it's, look, it's so physical. And I mean, look, at some level, you have to have the size and the physical skill to be able to be on the field and compete. I mean, you could have all the mental 
awareness and training in the world. And if you're 175 pounds, you're not going to be a, you know, effective linebacker at a certain level. You just physically can't do it. You know what I mean? But, but if you've got enough physical ability to, to be in the game at whatever level, the difference, you know, and there are always those extraordinary athletes that are just like, wow, you know, a quarterback that just has an unbelievable arm or is just so physical, can move around and do certain things. But still, even that, I mean, even as a fan, I never played football, but watching, it's like, we can see people with all the physical ability in the world that like when push comes to shove or when the game's really on the line, that person either really steps up or they completely fold. Um, and same thing with the team, you know, you get a group of extraordinary athletes together and you know, it's, it's, it, it, that's going to carry the day to some degree, but ultimately it's like, you know, I mean, look, I I don't know if you're a basketball fan, but I'm assuming being in Toronto and watching the Raptors. Yeah. I was at game six when they beat the Warriors and I'm a lifelong Warriors fan. But the thing that was amazing to me, two things. I mean, first of all, Golden State Warriors over the last five years have had unbelievable talent coupled with incredible chemistry. Like, they still almost won that game six after Durant had been out almost the whole series and Clay Thompson tears his ACL and they're one shot away from sending it to game seven when they clearly didn't have enough talent to, but the Raptors on the other hand, weren't expected to be in the finals, weren't expected to win the championship. And not only did they have one sort of transcendent superstar player, but something happened as they went on their playoff run that their role players really stepped up and played at an incredibly high level. And then all of a sudden it was like, wow, this team has a ton of confidence, even against the most dominant team in the NBA over five years, that they were able to win that championship. Well, you I, know, but if you looked at it on paper going into even the playoffs and even into a couple rounds, most people didn't think the Raptors were going to not only win the title, but even get to the finals. Exactly. And um, I love that you brought up the, the, the Warriors and, uh, you know, the team who has had incredible talent and great parallels to the business world. I've heard Steve Kerr, yes. their coach, talk about you know, I, I didn't realize that that sport, professional sports team did this, but they had team values, like just like in businesses, oh, like your sure. mission, your vision, your values. And, 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 yep. and Steve Kerr talked about one of the core values of the Golden State Warriors for the players was joy. And yeah. I thought that was absolutely fascinating. Again, parallel to the business world and what we've just been talking about here is that being your, your, bring your whole self, your true self and valuing that and you see certainly you know steph curry might be the poster child for a, a guy who's having fun out there and unbelievable right and uh i thought that was really amazing that that the team was that um i guess open and maybe there's a bit of vulnerability there for a very alpha male environment of professional sports um to talk about joy as one of the core attributes and that they need to bring to the practice to the workouts to the to the to the court every single day and i suppose there's a bit totally. of vulnerability in them to say to say that um oh for sure for sure well and i love it because you know it's funny i actually wrote about the warriors in bring your whole self to work because you know again i'm a huge sports fan i live here grew up here in the bay area uh even though i played baseball i've always been a huge basketball fan and the warriors if anyone follows the nba you know they've been terrible forever right like yeah. i mean yeah. It was 40 years between titles. They won in 1975 and then won again in 2015. And in those 40 years of not going, not winning an NBA title, they didn't make it to the playoffs. And think I think they were under 500, like 26 of those years. And, you know, so really, and then Steve Kerr comes in to coach a team that had some pretty good talent, young talent, but Steve, who, you know, won five championships as a player with the Bulls and with the Spurs, one of the things that he did, I mean, those you mentioned joy being one of them, but the other the other three 
values for the Golden State Warriors are mindfulness, compassion, and competition. So, I mean, think about those words, joy, mindfulness, compassion, those three. I mean, competition, maybe you could, but like you, you wouldn't associate those four things, those four values with a great sports team or even a great business team. Like that's yeah. not necessarily what would be, you know, like Unless commitment, you're a, yeah, hard work. Sounds you know. like a spa retreat or a yoga studio. Exactly. It's like accountability. But what's interesting, again, and, and again, for anyone listening who's not a sports fan or doesn't like basketball, we're, uh, you know, we're not trying to exclude you from the conversation. But if, think about it this way. In a super competitive environment and you take somebody. So this guy, Steph Curry, who most people probably at least have heard of, if not seen play, like here's a guy whose dad played in the NBA, although Steph could always shoot really well, but was undersized and wasn't expected to be a really great player, went to a small school in college, Davidson, ended up doing incredibly well in the NCAA tournament, which is what got him on the radar for the national media and everyone to pay attention and go, maybe this kid could actually play in the NBA, gets drafted by the Warriors in the first round, but is the seventh pick, which is still pretty high, but not like expected to be a superstar. And then, you know, has struggles with some injuries early in his career. Um, but nobody, including me, who loves the game, loves the Warriors, what nobody had any any sense that Stephen Curry was going to end up being one of the best players in the game and literally change the game because of the way he shoots. Yeah. Right. And the thing that I've said, and, and you know, as a lifelong sports fan, Steph Curry is actually probably my favorite athlete of all time in any sport. And from the time I've been watching sports since I was a little kid. And the main reason is when you watch him play the game of basketball, he plays with so much joy it's infectious. And it's like in a game, like you said, an alpha male type game, like, like basketball, even the greatest players, even Michael Jordan, who's arguably, and most people agree, the greatest player of all time, LeBron James, who's been the greatest player of this generation. Like those guys don't play with joy. They play yeah. with intensity, with determination, with passion, with skill, with all kinds of stuff. But like, wow, you can do that, you know, and yeah. that's kind of, but using that as an example, though, I think similarly, although a little different is like, when you see someone in business or in life that operates with not only joy, but compassion, with vulnerability, with this sense of openness and empathy and realize like, oh, maybe some of what we've been taught to believe about what strength and power and success and leadership and like maybe it doesn't actually look like what we think it really looks like. Mm. Yeah, and I, I think that... Um... You know, I think there was kind of a change. I don't know if it was just because of it. it was a mental turning point when we turned over from 1999 to 2000. But you know, the turn of the century, it seemed like there was a shift happening. Um, yes. I, I don't know off the top of my head right now what other driving forces were at play, but there definitely was a shift happening in the world of leadership, whether that be yes. you know, business, community, whatever it might be, where it went from this authoritative power, top of the food chain, highest IQ to the more EQ side of things, the more open side of things. And I think, again, a classic example would be the transition probably from uh, Steve Ballmer to um, uh, Saya, uh, sorry, the CEO of Microsoft right now. Um, yes. His name is escaping Satya. me. Yes, Satya. Yes, yes, yes. You know, very, very different personalities. Totally. And well, phenomenal different business results too. So, completely, completely. So, well, I have a couple of theories on that though. I mean, Go again, I think, I think part of what happened, if you think about it evolutionarily, right? It's like, Look, in general, things evolve as we move forward. So if you look at, you know, the turn of the century in from 99 to 2000, if we go back almost 20 years, I mean, part of what was happening, one thing we could look at 
is Daniel Goleman wrote his book, Emotional Intelligence, in 1995, right? Yeah. And that book, then, he adapted a piece and did a bunch of research in the, in the next three years studying leaders and companies and some of, I think it was like top 50 or 100 companies in America, and then wrote a big sort of foundational piece for the Harvard Business Review in 1998 that basically argued that two-thirds of a leader's effectiveness was based on their EQ or their emotional quotient, and only a third was based on their IQ or their intellectual quotient. Now, look, we think about that now in the context of the way the world operates in business and anybody listening to this podcast, and that doesn't seem like that big of a deal. But in 1998, that was a big deal. People thought he was crazy. People thought that was nuts because that was not the way we, we thought about leadership. That was not the way people got promoted into leadership. That was not, I mean, you know, there was this notion of like people skills or communication skills or charisma. It's not like people weren't thinking about that in the nineties or beforehand, but there wasn't, there, you know, there started to be this trend then in gathering data and research that proved this is not just some theory. This is not just some idea. But it was backed up by almost everybody's real lived experience because everyone at that point had worked for someone who was super smart but was a jerk or was really, you know, talented in the field or they knew someone or whatever, got promoted and was like, that person's terrible with other humans. Like, what's yes. up with that? Yeah. But I also think something that changed, if you think about then where we are in today's world in, you know, 2019 with the explosion of work around, you know, the importance of physical health and wellness and how that impacts our ability to, you know, do our jobs and do our work well. The explosion over the last decade with all the research around the importance of mindfulness. Some of this, I think, also happened. Look, you also have baby boomers retiring, people who are in Generation X, like I'm assuming me and you, and 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 then in, in significant leadership positions, and then millennials as a huge cohort coming up through and now taking over more than half of the workforce with a very different mindset, raised very differently. And also, I think that the economic downturn in 2008 and 2009 had a big impact because a lot of people, myself included, and probably almost everyone listening, if they were working at that time, took a step back and went, wait, what the heck are we doing? And why are we doing this? And what's it all about? And if it's not, everyone was so busy chasing, and that's what I sometimes worry about right now, even though it doesn't feel like we're in the same kind of bubble, at least with respect to housing and the, but the, I mean, gosh, with the stock market as high as it is and employment as high as it is and the economy, it's like, do we just get caught up in the economic growth of everything and stop actually paying attention to the human impact? And mm -hmm. I think when things went down the way they did, I think a lot of people went, wait a minute, I want to be doing work that's more meaningful because yeah. if the stock market can crash overnight and a lot of this wealth that's been built literally evaporate and I could lose my job, then what am I left with? I'm left with myself and my values and what really matters to me. Um, so I think it's, it's a combination of a lot of those factors that has then gotten us to this place. I also think the Internet and working remotely and the way that we work nowadays is so different. It's not like in the old days when our parents or grandparents went to work and they would literally show up at nine o'clock and clock in and do their work and then leave and go home and they could leave it all at work. We're now carrying our offices for better or worse around in our pockets or our purses. And we can work from anywhere, which is both wonderful and really dangerous because we have to manage our lives and our well-being in the midst of all of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the other one I would add to the maybe a factor at play, maybe I don't know if it's a, quite the bookend, but when you started with Daniel Goldman, 95 and then 98, um, and again, I don't know the exact date, but I think it was around 2005, YouTube started. 
Yes. And the other thing that came out really with YouTube in those early years, and I used to work in international marketing at the time and advertising. And suddenly the whole kind of what we called user generated content became a thing. And yes. what YouTube what YouTube made not only possible, made acceptable was if you're going to do a video, you don't need professional studio lights and everything right. being polished and shiny. Like compare that to 1980s, it was very different. That's but, true. But it became like, it's okay to not only maybe show yourself, but people related, what was found was people related more and more to people yes. who were just being themselves. Whether totally. you were a, a celebrity or a TV commercial or just, you know, Justin Bieber in his, in his living room. Yeah. Uh, a 14 year old or whatever he was. I know. And I know. so yeah. I think all those things, you're right. All those things factored into, I guess, the acceptance of being more authentic and understanding that the emotional part of us is really important yeah. and is important for growth and success in the business world. And I guess one thing that makes me wonder again, from drawing on your experience is, you know, you've been doing the rounds all over the world, talking about authenticity. Yeah. Where do you think people, or where, where's your experience show? Where do people hide themselves the most? Where do they hesitate, hold back in being authentic? Uh, are, there, are there identifiable kind of, I don't know, buckets or ways that if people can sit, who are listening to this can say, I can relate to that. Hey, maybe I'm not, yeah. a, maybe I'm not alone. Maybe I could be different or show up differently. I think, I think, I think we hide, um, you know, professionally, there's still this sense of like, we're, it's not okay to be scared or feel insecure. Mm. You know, when all those years ago, and you can probably relate to this, I can only imagine even in football, it's more intense, you know, and I was good, man. I mean, like I'd played for a long time. I was, but like every time before I'd go out to pitch, I'd be freaked out. Like, you know, like inside, just yeah. like the intense level of butterflies. And I, and I, I got to the point where I, I, I kind of in a weird way, and didn't realize until I was done, I, I sort of almost enjoyed the anxiety of it because it was like intense and it was, it focused me, but I would, but I would look at my teammates and nobody else looked anywhere near as nervous as I felt. So I thought I was crazy, yes. right? Like I thought maybe I'm just weird. Like maybe I'm just insecure. Like maybe I kept waiting for the day. And the weird part was, and you can probably relate to this too, Chris, right? The better I got and the further along, on the one hand, I had more experience. I had more skill. I had more, you know, ability um, more facility in doing it, more mastery, if you will, without sounding too arrogant about it. But like, I knew what I was doing as well yeah. or better than ever as I got older and was playing longer. However, the anxiety did not go away. And in fact, in some cases it got worse because the stakes got higher, the stage yeah. got bigger, the expectation was more. It felt like I was playing in college or then I was playing professionally. It was like, it really felt like at times, I mean, without sounding hyperbolic, like my life was on the line and I didn't like that. And I didn't really know how to deal with that. And again, nobody talked about it. So I just thought I was nuts. Right. And then I think, again, not everybody gets a chance to play football in college like you or baseball like me or whatever. But everybody, I think, can relate to that feeling of feeling nervous or insecure or that imposter syndrome of like, I don't belong here. How did I get this job or this promotion or this opportunity? And I think in still to this day, I do think why we are so desirous of more authentic and real conversations from people is because it does satiate that part of us. It goes, oh, okay, I'm not crazy. I'm just, I'm normal. Like yeah. everyone feels these things, but I still feel like what happens in the moment, in the meeting, in the, in the, you know, board meeting, in the meeting with the senior executive or with our manager, in the sales meeting, in the whatever, when the stakes are high, I still feel like we have this tendency to 
pretend um, like we're okay and we're confident and we have it together when we don't. So that any iteration of that, I think, has people hide out. I also think, look, and here I am and here you are and, you know, two, you know, straight white dudes talking and having this conversation, right? It's like I also think with respect to gender and race and orientation and all of the aspects of life and our identity – um, from talking to lots of people who self-identify in different minority groups, depending on where they live and what's going on. I think it's, you know, people will say to me, Mike, it's easy for you to talk about bringing your whole self to work, yes. but you're white and you're straight and you're male. You're, you're, you know, all of these things, you're cisgendered, you're, you live in California, you do blah, 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 all down the list of all these different sort of privileges, some of which I'm aware of, some of which I may be aware of at least conceptually, but I don't think about. Um, actively when I'm in certain situations and I realize, oh yeah, it, it might be harder and more of a risk for certain people um, to speak up about certain things or, or bring their, feel like they can bring their whole selves when certain aspects of who they are are so different than everyone else around them. Either they feel like they would be judged or ridiculed or just at the very least, nobody would even know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Like, and all yes. of us can have that, know what that feels like. Even just being in an environment where it's like, if I brought this up, it would literally fall on deaf ears in this room, not because people don't care about me or they think I'm weird. It's just because nobody here would understand this. Well, yeah. And I had one of the most um, eye-opening experiences once. I was running a, a training program for a, a national, big national company here in Canada you know, with all the directors, all the leaders. And uh, part of the exercise was getting really um, clear and intimate with your own fear. And so it was, yes. this was day three. So we had to warm them up to these kind of conversations. But what we had sure. to do was they actually had to um, build or, or construct a representation of their fear in Lego. And so they mm -hmm. build these things and there's a story around it. And then they had to go find a partner and walk around the room and t tell someone else about their fear. Mm. And two things happened from this exercise. One is when people were able to build a representation of their fear and it could have just been, you know, a little Lego pieces fencing in someone, they felt like they're on right. an Island somewhere. When they saw that fear in front of them, it immediately kind of dissipated. It reduced the strength of that because they disassociated yes. them, but they, they saw it outside of them rather than part of who they are. Yes. But the other, the, the most fascinating thing was when we had this debriefing conversation there was we talked about why don't we, why don't we talk about, what we're afraid of or what our fears are. And the immediate right. answer, of course, or sorry, obvious, uh, uh, expectedly, I should say, is, well, it makes us seem weak. weak well, then yeah. the immediate, the immediate follow-up question to that is when you just had that experience in the room and someone else told you about their fear, how many of you thought that that person was weak? And nobody, and nobody, nobody raised their hand. Yeah, nobody. And I know. it was actually well, a very genuine conversation to say, wow, like, Let's, let's, let's literally sit in this experience for a second and recognize that when we express our fears, people don't see us as weak. They actually feel more connected, more compassionate, more uh, wanting to know more and wanting to help you. Totally. Well, and, th and that's the thing. I mean, I think, you know, what's interesting, one of the many paradoxes of vulnerability is that when we experience vulnerability, um, you know, in vulnerability, I love Brene Brown's definition of vulnerability. She says vulnerability is risk, emotional exposure and uncertainty. So risk, emotional exposure and uncertainty, like, and I often will say when I, when I use that definition, I say, can you think of anything meaningful or important that you've ever accomplished or experienced in your life that did not involve risk, emotional exposure or uncertainty? 
No, if it matters, right? If a relationship matters, if a job matters, if a project matters, if a goal matters, if if anything, the team matters, it's going to involve one, two, or all three of those things. However, whenever we're, we're in the process of taking a risk or we're in the process of emotionally exposing ourselves in like in this exercise, admitting some things we're afraid of, or we're in the process of really leaning into and experiencing the uncertainty, those three things, and they're all different, but they elicit an uncomfortable, right? <laughs> Uh, experience for most of us. It's not like joyful necessarily. It's like, oh, it's like public speaking. It's like bungee jumping. It's like a lot of things that are like, they may be exhilarating. There's just that moment of terror, if not more significant, you know, fear that can, can last for a bit longer. However, when we do those things, we often judge ourselves or we're afraid that we'll be judged as weak. However, when most people experience us doing those things, taking a risk, emotionally exposing ourselves or really stepping into some uncertainty, other people experience us doing those things as what? Courageous. Yes. Like, wow, that was really bold. That was really courageous. So again, in the moment, now look, we have to be mindful. Who am I talking to? What am I talking about? Again, I mean, I I often will joke, you know, when not joke, but seriously say to to leaders, like there are times as a leader, it's absolutely 100% appropriate necessary for you to admit to the team of people who you are leading that report to you that I'm feeling scared right now. I'm not really sure how this is going to go or what, like that's 100% will elicit trust, connection, confidence, support, empathy, all these things. And there are moments where if you said that to your team right in that moment, it would scare the bejesus out of them, right? That they don't want to know that in that moment. So again, it's not that you, oh, does that mean I'm supposed to fake it till I make it and pretend like I'm cool? No, just use your emotional intelligence and use your own instincts and intuition. Like, oh, not the time to tell them that, but let me go find a peer or my manager or my coach or my mentor or someone who I can say, I'm freaked out right now. I have no idea what the right decision to make is. Yeah. And get, I, you know I, what I mean? I, I, yeah, I, I totally. And I've had some people in that same workshop say, say the same thing. Well, I, you know, oh, I can't tell people I'm afraid and that, that wouldn't go down well. And I said, well, well, you can do it appropriately. It's not going to, you're going to be curled up in the corner in a ball of tears right. telling people you're afraid. Like that's not going to go down well for sure. Totally. But you're bigger well, than the, that and you're, you're more resilient than that and you can handle this. It completely. And one of the things, I mean, I've looked at fear for many years and, and been fascinated by it because I think, again, what we know, and, and again, Chris, you probably know this as well or better than I do, right? Fear in our body, the, the physiological experience of fear is exactly the same as when we're excited, mm-hmm. right? So what's going on, even though it doesn't seem that way, why? Because the story in our head is really different. When we're, when we, when we experience like, oh, I'm scared right now, the story in our head is, oh my God, I might die. This is terrible. Everyone's going to hate me. I'm going to fall on my face. I'm going to look like an idiot, you know, whatever the heck it's the fear story that's running in our head. When we're excited, it's, it's a, the story is very different. The physiology is almost, I think exactly the same in terms of what, like the adrenaline rush and all the different things that are happening chemically for us. So part of it is also then realizing if we can harness the power of our fear, not by rejecting it, denying it, pretending that it doesn't exist. We all know and have experienced a lot of fear in our lives. The issue actually is when we resist it or deny it, that's when it gets stuck and becomes problematic. You know, one of the things like, so I I speak publicly and have for the last almost 20 years, right? I love getting up in front of groups of people, whether it's, you know, 15 people in a workshop or on a team that I'm working with, or it's, you know, 500 or a thousand or 5,000 people at a huge convention or conference where I'm speaking anywhere in between. I love it. I get super excited. Like you could literally wake me up at three o'clock in the morning and throw me up in front of a group of people and I'm ready to go because I love doing that. 
Now, people will often come up to me after I speak, and especially if it's at like a really big event, and you know, and I will appreciate the you know, compliments, but they'll say, oh, wow, like, that's amazing. How do you not get nervous doing that? And I'll look at them and go, what are you, crazy? Like, of course I get nervous. What do you think, I'm like a robot? I mean, it's like, especially if I'm up in front of like thousands of people, of course I feel nervous. I just now, and again, I don't say this arrogantly, but I've done it so much, I don't freak out about the fact that I feel nervous. Like, yes. my my knees will shake a little, or my heart will race a little, or my voice will tremble a little bit, especially, again, the bigger the event, the bigger deal it is, the stakes, whatever. But what I've learned to do over the years, and this goes back to my, I'm grateful for my training as an athlete, is to learn how to take that energy and channel it into what I'm doing. Because part of what I tell myself when I get up to speak is, okay, first of all, I, I love this. So <laughs> I do want to, like Steph Curry, play with joy. I want to bring some joy to this because I actually enjoy doing it, even though, yeah, that my body's reacting in a way and I'm feeling that that fear and that nervousness and that, you know, and that concern like it might not go well and everyone's going to be looking at me and it could be a problem. But what I try to tap into is remembering that every single person in the audience feels that same sense of fear. If they were in my shoes standing up in front of this group, they would probably feel nervous too. Yes. Right. And so I will often say I was actually coaching someone just the other day who was asking me for some feedback on speaking and she was a little worried. It's kind of an emotional topic. And what if I get emotional? And I said to her, listen, first of all, every time you stand up to speak, everyone's glad you're speaking and they're not. Right. Secondly, they actually want you to do well, because if you don't do well, it's not just bad for you, even though you'll be the most embarrassed. It's bad for everybody. If the speech really goes flat and it's terrible and is a train wreck and you forget what you're going to say or you, you know, fall into a pool of tears. And I'm, so I'm not trying to freak you out. But the deal is you're literally all in it together. I know that's the title of my book that I just wrote. But when we get up to give a speech or lead a workshop, even if there's only seven people in the room, it's like we're all in this thing together. And the presenter has a certain responsibility to lead the conversation. But if it ends up being terrible, it's terrible for everybody, just, not just the presenter, right? So I always try to think. And then the third thing is like tapping into that sense of common humanity. And I used to make up for myself back in the day when I would get, you know, really stuck in some of my fear about speaking. Okay, everyone here, I'm going to pretend like we're already friends. Like they already know me. They already like me. They already have my back. They already, even though I was like making it up because I realized if I was talking yeah. to a group of my friends, I'd still be a little nervous that they might judge me and whatever, but for the most part, I would know they were rooting for me. Yes. And so I then now sort of pretend in my mind the people out there, because here's what I know about human beings. They are actually already rooting for us. You know, there's like maybe one out of a thousand who's sitting there with their arms full, like hoping that you fall on your face and make a fool of yourself so they can laugh at you. But the reality is most people are not wired that way and are not interested in you. You know what I mean? Yeah. So just using that as an example for everyone listening, whether you ever speak in front of groups of people or not, how can we take our fear and give ourselves some permission that it's okay to be nervous and afraid because we're human and then channel it in the direction of how do I take all of this energy, which is what it is, and use it to my benefit as opposed to think I have to somehow suck it up or overcome it, which never works, by the way. Yeah, I have the same conversation with a lot of my clients uh, when I, I work with athletes on their mental performance. And yes. um, <clears throat> whether they're a, a skier or a basketball player or a runner, everybody gets nervous beforehand. And as I often say, nothing has meaning except the meaning you give it. And totally. uh, you're absolutely right. The, the feeling in the body from fear, whether it is something professionally or personally, big moment, small moment, whatever it is, it's the same as if you're excited. The difference is the story. And yeah. it's so powerful to interrogate the stories that we're telling ourselves. And, 
and uh, to be really aware of the stories. And I know that when you talk about authenticity, that one of the principles you have is to know yourself uh, mm-hmm. in authenticity. And um, of the principles that you have, when you talk about the principles for authenticity, and I guess, again, for someone listening to this, maybe, so maybe they're, they're nodding their head a bunch of times and they're, they're not feeling alone as much by listening right. to what we've talked about so far. Uh, in addition to what you just talked about in those, those three steps with an audience, where might someone be begin if they're saying, you know, I, I guess I got a lot of, I guess, clients who come to me are, are looking for some change. Yes. But there are a lot of people there who are looking for change. And maybe they're one who is, um, who hasn't been as authentic for themselves or for their family or for their colleagues right. very much. Where might someone begin if they're really, if they've really been digging in their heels in this old way of doing things? How do you start to right. unlock that or make it safe for people to be more of themselves? Well, look, I mean, I always think with if in general, there has to be some interest and desire on anybody's part. You know what I mean? It's not a have to or a should. Like nobody has to be authentic. You know, we all look and at some level, one of the things that I talk about is sort of authenticity exists on a continuum. On one side of the continuum is phony. Halfway down the continuum is honest. And then all the way on the other side is authentic and authentic in my, from my perspective is an ideal state. It's where if we operate from a place of authenticity more consistently, we're going to be more freed up, more liberated. We're going to have more impact on other people, but it, it takes courage. It takes self-awareness. It takes a lot of things to get there. And the truth is that authenticity is an in the moment phenomenon. So it's not like I'm authentic, like a, you know, I get an award or I wear a badge. It's like, I got to be authentic right now, you know, because mm-hmm. I can be as authentic in any moment and then as phony in the next moment. So it's a practice. And for people who may struggle with it, um, I, I, you know, look at first, it, it's got to start with a, 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 an interest that we have ourselves to get more curious about ourselves, to get more, you know, so it may or may not have anything to do with what we say out loud to other people. A great way to practice and, and, and really inquire into our own authenticity are things like journaling or meditation or spending a little bit of time in silence, which is something we almost never do in our crazy world today. And as much as I love like the podcast you and I are on right now, and I'm imagining a lot of people are listening to this as they're working out or they're, you know, in their car or they're, you know, in the midst of walking somewhere, doing something multitasking. I mean, I love and listen to podcasts all the time, but sometimes when I'm out on a walk, I will just for a moment, turn off my phone, take my earbuds out and just like check in with nature and how I feel. And, you know, I mean, it sounds like totally so simple, but like we're, I love all the technology that we have. It's fantastic. And it's so all consuming and inundating. There aren't a lot of times in life where we're just silent with ourselves. So, I mean, authenticity ultimately starts from within us and it's about a, 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 some kind of practice of ourselves of checking in with how am I feeling? What am I thinking? What's going on for me? What's true for me? What's working in my life? What's not working in my life? Where am I, you know, feeling really alive and connected and turned on and fired up and where am I not? And so all of that, and that's a constant inquiry process and a constant evolution, being more authentic with the people around us, whether it's at work or at home is a bit of a practice. It's, it's starting to flex that muscle and speak up a little more, express a little more how we're feeling, ask for what we want. I mean, there's little things that we can do. And, and quite frankly, some people are easier for us to be authentic with than others. Yes. So I often say to people, like, again, if they're looking at this, like, I don't know how to do this or where, 
like don't start with the scariest person. Yeah. Like your like your boss or your mother in law or whoever you're most intimidated by. Like that's probably for a number of reasons like one of the hardest people to be fully yourself with. Start with the people that feel safer, who yes. you already feel that sense of trust and connection with. And can you expand the authenticity there, which then sort of expands the muscle and makes it stronger so it becomes a little bit easier to do with people maybe you find it a little scarier to do it with? Well, one of the things that resonates with me you know, while you said there is certainly in the last, I don't know, maybe the last three, four, five years, somewhere in there where, like you, I like to listen to podcasts and put music in when I'm working out and doing different things. But there are some days where I I, I notice and I... Sometimes I don't have a language or how to describe it exactly, but I noticed that by throwing that thing in my ear right now, it's it's uncomfortable. It's not what I need right now. It's not what I right. not what my some of my psyche or my body is really craving. And so I do turn it all off and it's it's yeah. liberating. And I think what I'm what I see as well is that when people do experience some sort of resistance or friction or tension or noise within themselves. Unfortunately, where a lot of people go is they go to some other form of escape. Right. They don't want to feel those things, so they go to something else. Like maybe it is going to your social media or ice cream or uh, the radio or whatever, rather than just sitting in it. And yeah, as I've kind of probably similar to you, as I kind of dive into this world of being more authentic and really self self aware, deepening self awareness is, you know, all the greatest teachers of our modern time, including yourself, and also ancient time. There's always a component of sitting and just noticing and just feeling and just experiencing before you have to act and decide and try to change things. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I I, I totally agree. And as you were saying that, I was thinking of two phrases, again, referencing back to Brene Brown and her great work that I've heard her say over the years. Um, One is choose courage over comfort. Mm. And the other one is choose disappointment over resentment. So the courage over comfort is a willingness to say something or do something or try something that in the moment is going to take some courage, might be a little uncomfortable, but instead of just what's the more comfortable thing is to say, oh, no problem or okay, or, you know, when really it's like we, there's something else we want to say or do. And the choosing disappointment over resentment means like when someone asks us to do something and we don't really want to, but we say yes anyway, and then we're resentful towards them and towards ourselves because we said yes, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like getting to practice those things. I remember, and I don't know why this just popped into my head, when I was young and, you know, like an adolescent, probably 12, 13 years old, when I first started like talking on the phone to friends and to girls. And, you know, I remember that like, you know, staying up late at night and talking. And I think about this now because we have two girls who are 13 and 11 and even though they like to text and face the technology different than we did when we were younger because we didn't have those things. I used to do this thing that maybe you can relate to people like whenever I would say something on the phone to someone that I was scared to say, like that I liked them or that I was breaking up or whatever, I would I would instinctively move the phone piece away from my ear. So I was just talking <laughs> into the phone with just like, right? So I couldn't, I didn't have to deal with hearing their reaction. And I don't even know what that was. And I don't know if I was like one of the, I don't know. I have no idea. I've never even said that out loud before, but I would do that in a way that it's like, hey, I like you or hey, do, or, hey you want to do this or ask something. The fear being they're going to say no, or they're going to get upset or they're not going to like me or they're going to think I'm a jerk or whatever I was afraid of that somehow instinctively by like not being able to hear the response, I was going to protect myself, which was crazy. Right. But it was just this little way of, of being able to say it and knew like that was like a physical 
response on my part of like, this is scary to say, I have no idea what the response is going to be. I, I love that. I'm, I'm laughing, not because I used to do it myself, but I can, I can totally relate to what you would have been going through with wanting to do something, go out, you know, step outside the comfort zone and just not want to hear what happens next. Right. Um, right. But I love well, your, I think, your mad it, hack there. That's a good, that's a good hack. I don't know if we can put yeah, it in modern that, times, but it's not the same as maybe well, but, sending a text and then turning your phone off. I don't know. <laughs> there, well, that's what I was saying. Nowadays, what we do though, is we send the email or the text message and that's the way of lobbing the conversation over there instead of having to write, really deal with it in person. You know, one, one of the things a mentor of mine said to me years ago that I never forgot. And I often will relay this when I'm speaking and actually wrote a whole chapter about this in the book that I just, the manuscript I just finished. He said, Mike, you know, what stands between you and the kind of relationships you really want to have with people. I said, what's that? He said, it's probably a 10 minute sweaty palm conversation. You're too afraid to have. Mm. He said, if you get really, really good at those 10 minute sweaty palm conversations, you'll have fantastic relationships. You'll build trust, you'll resolve conflicts, you'll talk about elephants in the room, you'll ask for what you want, you'll just, you'll deal with stuff directly. He said, if you do like most of us and you avoid them because they can be messy or uncomfortable or sometimes people get upset or, he's like, then you end up being a victim of who you live with and who you work with. And he's like, but if you lean into the discomfort and have those sweaty palm conversations sooner rather than later, it'll benefit every relationship in your life. And I remember him saying that to me and I think about that now because look, even with all the work that I've done and even with as important as I know that is like my instinct, my initial reaction is like, I don't want to have those conversations. Like, I just want it to be all good and I want you to like me and I want things to be fine. Do you know what I mean? Like, but, but it doesn't benefit me and it doesn't benefit the relationships in my life. It doesn't benefit the work. It doesn't benefit, you know, my marriage or my children or any, or anybody. It just doesn't benefit when not that we, I'm not saying walking around picking fights with people all the time, but like, what if we felt more freedom to actually speak up and really talk about not only how we felt, but like what was real and true for us and what was really going on? So much time and energy gets wasted in life and particularly in business. I see how much time and energy gets wasted by people avoiding having conversations that they're on. They're not sure exactly how to have. You yeah, know? well, and that directly links to um, a conversation I had earlier in this podcast uh, with a mutual contact of ours, Jay Ellard. And her mm. insight that the, you know, the greatest stress comes from, greatest stress in our lives comes from conversations that are not being had. And yes. I love the, love the additional distinction you're bringing in that Teddy 10 minute sweaty palm conversation. I totally yeah. get that. And I, I love the fact that it's, you know, there's a, you know, there's of course the whole field of work over the past couple of de decades on difficult conversations and crucial yep. conversations. Um, yep. And I like the evolution of that. Uh, well, he's, I'm, I'm, I'm packaging it up as an evolution to say, it's not this massive, scary thing. It's 10 minutes. Totally. And, and you're right. I totally agree. It likely is 10 minutes. And not only is it maybe just 10 minutes, I would be willing to bet that if it's done, I wouldn't even say done well, but if it's done with some grace and it's done with true presence and probably a, a healthy dose of authenticity or vulnerability, that, that, 80% of those sweaty palm conversations not only will be way, way, way better than you can imagine in your head, but it will actually totally change the trajectory of the relationship you have with that person, especially if there's been tension in that relationship on some Absolutely. level, tension or avoidance or whatever it is, but it's a 10 minutes that can change the trajectory of your life. Completely. And, and when you really think about it, most difficult conversations or crucial conversations or whatever we want to sweaty palm conversations. It's really just the start of it that's the most yeah. anxiety producing, right? Yeah. 
how am I going to like, I, I like, I have a conversation scheduled for later this week that is a sweaty palm conversation, right? For me personally, like I, it's on my calendar and I'm glad it's scheduled because it needs to happen. And I'm feeling some anxiety about it. The hardest part of that conversation is literally going to be the first 20 seconds. Yes. Like after the pleasantries and the like, like beating around the bush and like, when do I actually dive into the deep end of the pool and say, by the way, or, you know, and oftentimes what I'll say to people, the truth for me is if it's a really, really scary or difficult conversation, I usually just try to start with the truth and the truth almost always is for me at the beginning of those, you know what? I really don't want to have this conversation or I've been avoiding this conversation yes. or I've been really feeling anxious about this conversation. I've been practicing this in my head for the last however long trying to figure out the right thing to say, like starting from that place of vulnerability, right? The metaphor that I use in my work is a bit of an overused metaphor, but I think it fits really nicely. It's the metaphor of the iceberg yes. and like what we need to do to be more authentic and more vulnerable in life is lower the waterline on our icebergs. And yet, is that scary? Yes. Is it potential that we might get hurt? Of course. Is it might people might judge us or think we're weird? Yeah. They might use it against us. Yeah. All those things are possible. But I mean, in my experience of life for, walking around on the planet for 45 years, those things happen anyway, even when I try to protect myself and never have those things happen. So like if we're going to have more meaningful relationships, if we're going to go for the things that we really want in life, if we're going to really build trust and, and intimacy with people, whether it's personally or even professionally, like it's going to involve lowering the waterline on our iceberg. And if we do that, it can liberate us. And it also, as I was saying at the beginning in response to your question about what's bringing our whole selves to work about, it gives other people permission to do the same. Cause yes. then all of a sudden it's like, Oh wow, we can go there. Like he just went there. She just went there. Like there's a lot more space in the conversation for us to get real. And yeah, again, it might get a little uncomfortable or we might hear some things that we don't love, but it's like, I've always sort of believed at the end of the day, as sensitive as I am. And I can be, I can be a, anyone who knows me well knows I can be really, really sensitive. I can get really emotional. I can get my feelings hurt really quickly. And we, even with all of that, the truth is the truth is the truth. I would much rather know what you really think about me and what we're doing if it potentially could make things better or there could be some level of improvement or enhancement than just us all acting nice so that my little ego doesn't get bent out of shape. Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, bravo to you for... Uh for willing to step into your own sweaty palm conversations. Um, <laughs> you brought up, uh, you brought up the fact that you've got two daughters and I wanted to ask yes. you about parenting. And I've, I've got a, uh, I've got a 14 week old little boy now. And, uh, oh, we're, we're maybe a little while away before we really, really mold him, uh, directly or indirectly yes. into, consciously or not. And the, the question I wanted to ask is, you know, again, from your, all the, the, the work and the conversations you've had and the studying you've done around vulnerability and authenticity, you know, you know, as you said in one of your books that, you know, we're not taught to be that way. We're not yes. taught to show our true self. We're, we're taught yes. to follow others or act in a certain way and follow rules and which, which, yep. which takes us away from who we are. So, um, as a parent, as you, as a parent, how has that shaped your parenting? And what do you think, you know, how do we get kids, if I could use that broad term, I don't know what the right age frame is, but how do we get kids, how do we get the next generation is maybe a better way of saying it. How do we get the next generation to, um, I mean, how do we not mess up the next generation, like, like yeah. all the generations before us? Well, look, for, first of all, I think it's important to acknowledge <laughs> we are going to mess them up just probably in different ways. So we have to have some compassion for ourselves and like, you know, like with good intention, 
I think you can look at actually young people today. And one of the, I think, accurate criticisms is, you know, we've overparented them. We've micromanaged them. We've overscheduled them. And why did we do that? Not because we were trying to mess with them, but because we were compensating for some things that maybe we felt were lacking in the way we were raised. Right. Yep. So that said, I do think, first of all, I think the good news is from my experience, not just with my own children, but with, when I interact with kids, whether it's, you know, young kids, whether it's adolescents, whether it's, you know, later in high school or college age kids, my experience is that a lot of the resistance to the stuff that you and I are talking about does not exist to the same degree with younger generations. So that's really good news. The second thing is like, we also have to let people be where they are in life. So the evolution, like again, a 13 year old or a 23 year old today is, is it different than 10 years ago, 15, 20, 50, a hundred years ago? Yeah, it's different in terms of the world's different and technology's different and the stuff, their influences are different, but there's still a universal aspect of being 13 or 17 or 20. You know what I mean? Like, and I think about that now as a parent of now a 13 and 11 year old and also when they were five and seven and when they were toddlers and, you know, just trying to let them be who they are and where they are and not either rush the process or overdo it. But I think for me, the way I try to approach vulnerability with our daughters is first of all, trying to be as real and vulnerable as I can with myself and with my wife, Michelle, about the parenting process. And again, I don't share everything with my girls because that's not appropriate. They don't need to know my struggles as a father necessarily all the time. That I share with Michelle, that I share with my close friends and people who I reach out to all the time, by the way, saying, oh my gosh, this is really hard. I'm feeling really scared. I feel like I'm screwing this up. I don't know, you know, and I'm grateful for my men's group and I'm grateful for the people in my life and those who, who have children who are older than ours who I can reach out to go, am I crazy? Is this normal? Like, so yeah. I think there's a lot of work we all have to continually do so that we can get the support that we need to do this incredibly important and challenging and vulnerable job called parenting. With my girls though, I definitely from time to time will express to them, especially right now with my 13 year old, I'll look at her and just say to her, hey, listen, I'm doing the best I can. I've never had a 13-year-old daughter before. Hmm. And look, I won't be able to say that to her sister because when her sister's 13, I will have already had, you know what I mean? But, but in that way, not to <laughs> hey, I did it once before. I didn't do it right. So yeah. let me try you differently. Exactly. You. <laughs> I'm trying to figure it out the second time around. But I, I, I try to like let her know, like, hey, look, I am not, not like an excuse and not like to be defensive, but just to let her know. But what I also do, even with respect to my work, like my girls kind of understand what I do and like dad writes books and he gives speeches and now they're at an age too where they like to make fun of me. Oh, you know, motivational speaker guy, whatever it is. It's all fun. <laughs> but I try to explain to them without going into too much detail, but like what I'm doing or I'll, I'll even like text, you know, back to Samantha, our 13 year old and say, you know, like I'm in Los Angeles and I'm about to give this speech and I'm feeling really nervous this is a big deal or there's someone in the audience I'm, or whatever, not to, again, but just to like, let them know I had this big meeting and I was really nervous and it actually went well. And I was proud of myself because I like to share with them, not just what I'm doing. Like, it's like, Hey, you should be proud of your dad. But like the process, I was writing a book over the summer and I was struggling at times with the book. And all they knew was that dad was going away to write and like, when are you going to be done? And so there was that conversation, but like, Hey, you know what? I'm really in this point in the book that's super important and I'm struggling a bit with it and not for their, to fix it or their help or anything, but just to express, express to them some of the challenge and some of the struggle so they can see, because I think our kids look at us 
you know, and when they're certain ages, they look at us like heroes and like we can do no wrong. And then at other ages, they look at us like we're idiots and we do everything wrong. But what I'm hoping that my girls will get about me and, and Michelle feels this way too, is they'll see like we're real living, breathing, imperfect human beings trying to do the best we can as parents, as husband and wife, as people out in the world doing our work so that as our girls grow up, my hope is that they'll be able to reflect back. And as they have their own fears and doubts and insecurities, realize like, oh, my dad used to talk about and and let me know when he would feel scared and he would still go out and do that stuff anyway. Yeah. Um, What you make me think of is um, something I often talk about when I'm training and doing some development work with leaders and managers is that as a leader and manager, and it's the same as a parent, you are always being watched. Totally. You're always being watched and people are learning consciously and subconsciously, overtly and directly. And I love your example there of texting your daughter, telling them you're nervous because I, you know, as the, um, as Marion Williamson says, by you being yourself, you give permission for other people's to be themselves. Yes. And I'm sure whether it's maybe not on the same day, but maybe even it's three years later, I'm, I, I have no doubt that your daughter, maybe in her, in a couple of years, when typically the, the parents are very uncool yes. uh, and she's getting into even more of a social scene that when she yep. feels uncomfortable and nervous, she will come to you because you've made it a safe space to be uncomfortable. Totally. And, and to talk about things that are, you know, I remember coming back from an event a few years ago in Las Vegas, I spoke at, and then a, a couple of days later, the client sent, it was a big conference and they sent back the feedback, like they sent me the whole sort of Excel spreadsheet with all of the feedback and the rate. And I, you know, I try not to get too hung up on feedback. I mean, I want to hear it, but it's, but it was funny. I opened up this thing and a lot of the comments were really positive, but there were a bunch of a handful of really, really critical, like this guy was terrible and he was talking about authenticity and he was the opposite of authentic. And I, whoa, but I actually, and I, I had an emotional reaction and then I started laughing about it. And then I actually showed it to my girls and I was like, Hey girls, you want to see what they're saying about your dad? And they were like, dad, that's mean or that's hard. And I was like, yeah, but you know what? Everyone has their opinion and it's important to like, you can learn from people's opinions. And you know what? I don't know these people. They just saw me give one speech and they're entitled to their opinion. And if some of these things are consistent, like the negative things, then maybe I'll pay attention and take a look and say, maybe there's something I could be doing differently. And you know what I mean? I was just like, but trying to share a little bit again, not to, overly burden them with adult challenges per se, but just to share some of, you know, and everyone listening, if you have children of whatever age, they may or may not be interested in your work, but I tell you what, they're definitely interested in you and they're interested in your journey and your process, whether they overtly express it or not. And I think the more willing we are to share with our children, like what's really going on inside of us appropriately, age appropriately. And, you know, I mean, like, I don't sit around and talk to my girls about fights that my wife and I get into. Like, we got to work out our marriage ourselves, right? Not with the girls. Yet at the same time, I also think, well, there's all these books that say, like, never argue in front of your kids. and You know, Michelle and I don't fight that often. But if we do, if we disagree with each other, I do also think it's healthy for children to see, like, hey, mom and dad can get annoyed with each other and frustrated or have a difference of opinion, have an argument or conflict, do it respectfully and work it out and still love each other. So that there's not this sense of like, oh, we have to do that behind closed doors because like, you know, that's just not real life. Yes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. Well, I think you're, it's an inspiring example and I've taken some notes here for myself and uh, I'm sure my <laughs> wife and I will get into some of this on the after show as well. And yes. um, a couple, a couple last, last questions here is um, I know you've just submitted your manuscript for your fifth book. 
We're all in yes. this together, creating a team culture yep. of high performance, trust and belonging. Can you give us yeah. a, maybe a sneak peek as to what are some of the nuggets that, uh, that might uh, draw people into your book and would be something to check out? Yeah, well, there's there's kind of two main things. I mean, the reason that I wrote this fifth book is like, you know, sort of it sort of builds on bring your whole self to work. Like the final principle in bring your whole self to work was around what I call creating a championship team. So I kind of wanted to double click on that. And it's something that I mentioned earlier from my experience as an athlete and my passion for doing this work is like, I really believe, you know, team culture and team chemistry is so important, as important, if not more important than talent. And so I wanted to write a book that kind of went into some of the key principles that I've been, you know, researching and studying, but also been talking about and speaking about for a number of years. And I, I haven't written a book specifically about that, but, but secondarily, and maybe even more importantly, and even the title specifically of we're all in this together is I've just been aware as I'm not the only one that the world that we live in, you know, here in the U S and I know you're up in Canada and you guys have your own version of this, but, and the world has become incredibly divisive. Yeah. And there's so much of us versus them energy that exists. And again, we can see it in the news media or we can see it in the political realm. But I see it sometimes even inside of organizations or families. And, you know, I mean, again, we now are so empowered with all of this technology and all of these platforms to express ourselves. And I think the beauty and you were talking earlier about YouTube and like the ability to do all that is great. The dark side of that is it's easier for us to draw lines of I'm on this side, you're on that side. And, and my experience of life without being too corny or, or overly simplistic about it as I travel around the U.S. and around North America and around the world is like we're way more alike than we are different. Absolutely. And, and especially in the realm of, of humanity and authenticity and vulnerability, you and I are talking about the further down below the waterline we go on the iceberg, the more similar we become. Yeah. And I really have this deep passion within myself that so much of my work and, and what I believe to be true is that life is about finding what's true for us within us and bringing it out. But it's also about trying to connect with other people in whatever real and authentic way that we can. And like, I've just always been somewhat naive maybe in a way, but I've never quite understood like, um, who's the us and who's the them. Isn't it all us? Like, yeah. So the book really explores like how do you create that kind of environment with your team and in your company and how do we actually try to create more of that in the world because I really feel like that's what the world needs right now. So well said, Mike, and uh, I think it's uh, I think it's fantastic. We need we certainly need leaders like you and pioneers like you to bring these conversations to to light. And uh, before I ask the final question, where can people learn more about your work or get in touch with you? Yeah, the best place to do that is at our website, which is Mike Robbins. Mike-Robbins.com. Perfect. I'll uh, yep. make sure we put that in the show notes. Uh, final question for your time on the Ignition Show. What do you hope to ignite in the world, Mike? Mm. Um, it's a good question. I think sort of following up on what I just said a moment ago, my intention is to ignite compassion and understanding and connection in the world for myself, for my family, for the people, you know, who I have the honor of, of interacting with and connecting with myself, but also, um, you know, inspiring that in others. I think that's a, a great note to end on. I think you've, you provide a lot of great nuggets here and I really appreciate uh, everything that you've shared and the work that you've done. I appreciate uh, the conversation we've had here and um, 
I look forward to seeing you and having a read of your book when it uh, when it comes out and and happy to share the word, uh, happy to share the message that you want you want to bring to the world. Thanks, man. I appreciate you having me on, and uh, it's good to connect with you and everybody listening. All right, thanks, Mike. That was author and speaker Mike Robbins. You can find all the links in our show notes. We always want you to get the most from the time you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learn, and most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned or found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com connect and let us know what struck you and what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today. You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments and follow-up questions. Just go to Facebook and search The Ignition Show. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, it's my wife and business partner Sarah and I, talk about what we learned from this interview and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. As always, if you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review on iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. We read every single review and comment that comes through iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, Whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.